Welcome to the Free Range Buffalo. Break free from the herd. Welcome to part three of the incentivized animal, the truth of the market, the oracle of humanity, and the false prophet of prophets. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Morse. Good evening, Bryce. How are you doing this fine day? I'm doing well. Excellent. Well, let's jump right into it. The truth of the market. You know, when we talk about this incentivized series, it's hard to look at it in our modern age uh, without looking at the impact the markets have um, on us every day. You know, there's this, it's, it's an investment vehicle. It's a way of, of, of us measuring success. It is our for- forecaster and prognosticator of the future. Um, but rather than looking at it in its present form, in its more abstract New York Stock Exchange, Toronto Exchange, London, etc., I want to take a look more of its foundational. And, and I don't mean to jump back into the sands of time, going back to the bazaars, you know, because we've had markets, the exchanges of goods and services through bartering and coin, since we've ever had humans in trade. But rather in its more modern incarnation, at the, at the, at the beginning of our modern age, you know, back in the, uh, in the Middle Ages, where the, uh, in Holland, where they stood, um, they started making some of the more corporations and markets how we would understand them today. And the Dutch are an amazing, this was an amazing time actually in the age of exploration when they, they took a look at the world and it was the age of exploration. The new world was discovered. Riches were coming in, especially into Spain. France and England are racing to catch up. They were looking at uh, the discovery of sugar cane and bringing sugar, which was a revolutionary thing for Europe. Huge profits to be made off of that. Um, spices coming in from the, um, from the Far East breaking the throttle, uh, the bottleneck that was Turkey on the uh, Silk and Spice Road, and there was huge opportunities. But the Dutch were actually a very capital-poor country. They didn't have the resources to, to take on the task, but they came up with a very novel solution, and it was by creating something, that, that the corporation. So these multi-year journeys for these uh, sailing vessels, you would, you would equip a ship at huge expense, crew it at huge expense, and it would go off on a multi-year voyage, one, two, maybe three years, to go halfway around the world to exchange your goods uh, f- for these commodities. And although hugely profitable, potentially, uh, these ships had a tendency to sink. Hmm. And then you could be, you'd be ruined. One vessel sinking could ruin a, a person. So what they said is, no, let's, what we're going to do is, we're going to raise the capital because we don't have enough just of ourselves. Or if it goes down, if the ship sinks, everything we've worked on, my, my entire life, my family, they're wiped out. So what we'll do is we'll sell shares at potential profits and we'll, we'll raise capital to have the ship. And what they did is people could buy in around the community. You know, you know it's just who you knew, you know, down at your local church, down your local community public square. And you'd say, well, this is what we're doing. You know, and how many guilders do I need to, to, to bring it in? And, they raise the funds to build these corporations, to build these ships, to fund them, and then off they go. And then they bring the, the successful voyages brought such um, wealth into Holland. They turned Amsterdam into the um, Venice of Northern Europe with all the canals, the amount of goods flowing in and out of there. I mean, it, it, it at one time was the power of Northern Europe uh, and, and because of, of their trade. Really clever. And that model of corporations then became a little more abstract and they were able to use it for other vehicles as well and really take what was a low capital pool 
and democratize it, spread this risk around, spread the profits around, and begin to really inject a lot of energy, a lot of capital into their economy. And it, and it, and it brought them uh, wealth beyond anything that they, they thought possible. I yeah, think, the, uh, the capital being passed around, I think, created velocity and, yeah. and led to them getting all that power. Yeah. And when you look at it from an incentive point of view, uh, the ship, the merchant would have an incentive to diversify his risk away, um, yeah. you know, in case the ship did go down. And other people are going to do that because they can participate in the future potential profits. I think some unintended benefits of it, too, is it allowed projects that might have been a little bit riskier Mm -hmm. to be funded based on uh, maybe uh, an investor's higher demand. You have to incentivize to a higher risk, right? Maybe there's less probability, so they're going to get more of a reward. But when you look at it from they were both had an incentive to sort of pool their money and then therefore diversify their risk. So all the parties involved had optimal outcomes. So. Yeah. And I love the way you, the, 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 that, that uh, Turner phrase of uh, economic velocity, you know, I've, I've flashed forward in the markets to as America was industrializing and um, mid 18th century there, the teaming of the West and the railways are, are, are coming across and and all these things are coming together. So they, the Americans have learned from the British, who've learned from the Dutch, and they're applying these same lessons. They're not at this time; it's still an agrarian society. But that, but the the wealth of the land is apparent. But they have to have ways to transport it, besides just on the Mississippi. And they start bringing down th- these railways, and they're democratized the risk. So they're able to to, to really bring in way more um, capital to bear than just a few individuals and. They're bringing it across the, the um, America to such points where it used to take three months to get across it would now take a matter of days across the country. So now you can actually exchange materials, goods, trades, services. So they made money on the railways. There, it's now a, a um, an economic um, corridors across the United States to the point where they actually have a, a way of actually setting up a mercantile exchange that still exists today, which is in Chicago. And, and, and to a lesser degree in Kansas City, where they actually sell futures for agriculture production. And it's the same thing. It's a, it's a, it, they now have a commodity market, but it's, it's tied to a physical product, but it's done through paper transactions. So on my future production, I'm going to sell it to you as this, which allows the, the money, in theory, to actually be brought down to the to the farmer's level, so he can have capital for the seed, for the investment, for the you know for the capital infrastructure, or whether it's for the slaughterhouse, whether it's for the transportation of the goods, they actually have the money ahead of time in anticipation of, of the product. And that goes back even further in history to the old olive traders of Greece. <laughs> yeah, like, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> it's just how, how are we making it more complex, more efficient? There's a saying I can't remember who I'm going to attribute it incorrectly. Because I've no, so I'm not going to attribute it at all. But <laughs> you can the, attribute it to the, yourself if the, you don't know. The saying is, oh yeah, it's the internet nowadays. <laughs> uh, the saying goes essentially: there's nothing new under the sun, especially in finance. It's just different ways of leverage or different ways to financially engineer something. And I think if you do examine things in that manner, it's happened. But what I wanted to say about the farmer mm. matching up with with. Uh, this mercantile exchange to say maybe even a faceless buyer, mm. what that allows them to do is realize a fair price for their product. 
they don't have to rely on, on unscrupulous people without scruples. Yes. And, uh, notice I didn't even jump might, in. I didn't even jump in and correct that. Scrupulous. <laughs> I, <laughs> I realized after, but it's live radio. So that's right. Continuing on, uh, it allowed them to find a fair price, but yeah. they had to standardize things. And yeah. I think even with the shares of the corporation, when we exchange uh, a unit, mm-hmm. it has to be accepted that you and I agree on the value of this. And with more buyers and sellers, you're going to determine a value within that marketplace as to what that means and what units were exchanging for what value. And now we're, you've just got right into the crux of it, the truth of the market. Because without that one step removed in a transparent, open exchange, it was way too easy for someone to be unscrupulous, to be nefarious, certain other adjectives, insert here within us. But really, it, it gave opportunity for them to, for there to be, you know, I said velocity, for there to be economic drag, where, where the, where the front-end producer was not able to get fair reward for their work and was de-incentivized for maximum production. Whereas, if you have an open and honest exchange, it's that open and honest, because that, that, there's been a great debate amongst many people for throughout the ages of humanity about whether humanities are, is honest or deceitful. Well... They're both, of course, that's the actual answer. But it depends, how do you keep the maximum number of people to be as honest as possible in order for the, for the free exchange of goods and services? And really the answer is clear, honest, transparency, broad open lights to not allowing anyone to hide in, in, in the dark. Because when you do that, people have a tendency to hold each other up and open. So if you know that Michael Morris and co, they're an honest broker, they, the, and, and they have a reputation for always being honest, and they're, and they're in the open exchange, and I have a choice of we're going with Michael and Co., or I go with uh, uh, Bryson's son. Well, Bryson's son, well, we know that he, no matter what, those guys always knock five points off, or or, 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 or they don't pay on time, or there's something about that. And, and when that's known in open market, it allows for that exchange to happen with much less drag, and that brings in that efficiency. And that efficiency tends to accelerate, velocity creating that velocity it does i think in any exchange even in the open marketplace distortions can be uh inherent within them now in private ones it could be maybe amplified a little bit and they don't tend to last long in in public markets but they certainly can happen but typically what ends up happening is capital gets allocated more efficiently that way like Mm. you said it allows uh value discovery but if you look at uh, one of the best capital allocators of our time, Jeff Bezos, mm. he's never paid a dividend. He never will. He doesn't do stock buybacks. He doesn't do many of these things that are created uh, or called shareholder value. Right. right? Uh, he's, he thinks that he's a better allocator of capital than you are. And therefore, you reinvest it <laughs> into Amazon. And, uh, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to argue with the results. But that's kind of the basis of the economy is capital goes where it's it's most efficient and it will pool there. And the pooling creates power. And that group that controls that pool of capital will have more power within the marketplace than, uh, than ones that don't allocate their capital effectively. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's a, for me it's a really important to take that step back from that because that's a very powerful uh, phrase, a very powerful way to articulate that the uh, capital will go 
to where it's most efficient. But what that really translates in my very simple mind is that it's going where it can maximize its most profit. That's what it's doing. And that is the, that's the magic. That's the secret sauce. That is what was, that's been referred to as the hidden hand of capitalism is because the reason why capitalism is so much more efficient than any totalitarian regime, more powerful than communism, no matter how good communism sounds on paper, the reason why capitalism is so efficient is because it's ruthless in being efficient. And when you're efficient, it puts the capital where it needs to be at that time. Rather than being dictated by someone who might not have all the details, it's looking to say, well, sure, but you're telling me I should be growing wheat but if I can make more money growing tobacco, then that's what the market's demanding. And if, if and it has to make up, well, actually growing tobacco, I have to be more attentive. It's a, it's a harder crop to grow. There's more chance for failure. You know, it, it's only in a small region where I can actually grow it effectively. Therefore, if you have the means to do that, that's that's what you do. You're taking on that risk. And, and as an incentivized animal, you playing that part of what makes the best use of your labor and your time within your framework of like in the farming example. Well, if you live in Nebraska, well, you can't grow tobacco there. The only thing you can really grow is some, some grains. Well then, or, and now corn, because they modified that, of course, incentivized. But to that end, that's what dictates the inputs into the market. So it would be foolhardy to, to think that any one person can ever fully understand the intricacies required for a human community of 50,000, let alone 50 million or 5 billion. And I think that's why capitalism has shown to date as being an, why it's swept the globe and has been an irresistible force um, and, and why it's dominated the 20th century and why we are looking without an alternative, you know, in this moving into the third decade of the 21st century. Well, yeah, I think a marketplace, you could say, is an amalgamation of human decisions. If it's a place that we're all allowed to uh, to express our opinions using our capital that we've built through our labor, through our savings, through whatever it may be, mm. then the open marketplace is the amalgamation of all human decisions ever made. Now, let that sink in for a minute. The amalgamation of all human decisions. You know, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try and be really uh, academic and really speak like I, I know. I'm saying there's a word for this in German, Zeitgeist. The only reason I know that is because there's a documentary on Netflix. Really, what that says is that there's a there's a there's a mood, there's a there's a collective human consciousness of an age, and you know the Germans have this word for Zeitgeist. Oh so yeah, that there's this collective understanding of humanity. I think the most realistic thing is yeah, it's called the market, and where where we come together to exchange, you know, I guess we, I kind of want to talk about when we talk about the truth of the market. Even in in some ways, you can take a look at how large gambling, like on on how that works, because the it, it's not quite as like the market, but, the, but there's a lot of similarities about how if you get enough people coming together to bet on whether it's a sporting event or now you can bet on political events, um, how close the odds are by the um, gambling communities 
as opposed to polls and other, other um, ways to, ways to predict. And really, what they're doing is is they're tapping into some of the predictive uh, the predictions that the markets have been bringing to bear over the last hundred plus years. I think there's some of that gambling. They want to balance the books, so exactly, that yeah. they try and they try and get it as close as possible. And yet, even in those uh, and the similarity to marketplaces is that inefficiencies get tend to get priced out fairly quickly. Mm. So the smart money in gambling, if they see an inefficiency, they'll exploit it immediately. Yeah, it's less about they don't care if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl or or you know Timbuktu does. Right, it, it doesn't matter to them. What matters is that they're able to see. Um, that the spread should only be plus three, and it's you know plus eight. They're right. gonna they're gonna slam that back to what it is. So it's <laughs> it is kind of a truth uh, truth uh, realizing mechanism as well. Yeah, almost like a a barometer of truth. Mm, barometer and, of truth. I like. And I really like when you when you're taking a look about you know it's spotting these these inefficiencies you know and bringing it back into you know the the into the marketplaces. I mean and. The gambling is it's just another version of marketplace, although so there's some built-in distortions there because it's manipulating the same incentives. But when you're taking a look at, because we live in the you know in these, I think the markets have been a huge driver for our information age as well because information, the timeliness of information allows for the the proper allocation in a timely manner. Because and, and and I think that's one of the things why markets are are moving so fast because the information, like I was watching, um, RBC was talking that they had set up a bank in, in Manhattan and they were really really keen on a certain location because they were just laying down some fiber optics and it would give their uh, traders and their algorithms and their computers a point one five second advantage over eighty percent of their competitors because of the, the location and the and laying of this new fiber line. Yeah, it's now uh, it's now into the nanoseconds. Uh, Michael Lewis <laughs> Man, wrote, I live a, in the past. wrote a good book at, about it called Flash Boys, and yep. uh, one of those guys that was setting that floor up, he's now gone on to create his own exchange with uh, different latencies built in, so that you can't build those speed advantages in. Okay. But the reason why you have uh, office buildings around the exchange in New York and Chicago that are completely empty other than computer servers is because that they were incentivized to mm. be slightly faster than the competition because that slightly faster than the competition could make them fractions of a penny, but that you do that hundreds of thousands of times a day and it begins to add up over time. Yeah. And so they were incentivized and, to and just it, be that little bit faster. Again, yeah. And now you have 50 foot skyscrapers that are just full of computer servers because of what was incentivized. I love that. I mean, it's a horrible waste of space in one of the most expensive places in the world, but I love that as an expression of, of, of where incentivizing behavior goes to logical extension. And I think talking about the markets, talking about how they find their truth, how, well, not the theirs, they're finding the truth of value. And the value is only found at the moment of exchange of the moment when you're willing to accept a price that I'm willing to pay and I'm willing to pay at a price that you're willing to accept. And at that coming together, there's that's where true value is defined and that's, va that's value at the marketplace. The same that was done in the bazaar down in, down in Cairo 3,000 years ago, from Babylon to Athens to Venice to Paris to Amsterdam to London to New York 
And now at every exchange around the world, I'll modeled off, off the same one. And I think that's really telling about the truth power of when you really master the incentivized animal. And on that note, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Always. Have a good night, everyone. From all of us here at the Free Range Buffalo, roam free. Free.